Welcome back to the podcast. This is Sharak, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And just as a final reminder, there's still room to come on our 2022 marine biology trip. Uh, we are clo- officially completely closing registrations for that at the end of March. So we still have two spots left, I believe, for one guy and one girl um, if, with how we have the bed set up right now. So if you'd like to get more information or if you would like to get on the wait list for next year when we have when we get that open, <laughs> you can go to the website on our marine biology page right under the events tab. Uh, as always, if you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And here is Michael Lane and the Rotimaeus Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, episode 22. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith, your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me for this lesson in our Bible study called The Road to Emmaus. This is the old messianic prophecies dealing um, with the coming Messiah. So these are from the Old Testament, and we've been covering the major prophecies found there concerning what Jesus would fulfill. How would the Jews know the Messiah when he came, and and also what are details about the life of the Messiah. And as we begin going through this, we started in uh, Genesis, of course, we're going through Malachi, and today we are going to be in the book of Daniel. Now, I have been waiting so long to do this lesson, because this is one of my all-time favorite books dealing with messianic prophecy. Uh, If you've been under my teaching um, in the past for a long period of time, um, you probably have heard me talk a lot about Daniel because it's one of my favorites as we get into the prophecies here. Daniel is a major book of prophecy, and no question about that. It's one of the major prophetic books, if I get that word out right. But this is a fascinating thing dealing with with the Messiah himself. Now, there's both, um, it's a dual, there's some dual things in here because we'll see prophecies dealing with Jesus in his first advent when he came as the suffering Messiah. But we'll also see, um, well, there are, we're not going to cover these, uh, the future events in eschatology. This lesson isn't, this series is not based on eschatology as much as it's on showing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah by fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, of which we said there's about 250 of these. We're only covering about 80 or so of the major prophecies prophecies. So as we get into this, I want to, first of all, as we go into this um, this lesson here, I want to um, point out something specific about uh, the book of Daniel itself. And as I said, Daniel's book is primarily a book on um, prophecy having to do with the Messiah, but there's there's something more about this. This book is just a tremendous book. Now, I know a lot of people know the stories in the book of Daniel. Um, The first few chapters, uh, as you get into it, one through six, and we sometimes read these as bedtime stories or whatever, Uh, they're often put into bedtime Bible story books. And we, we know these, we teach them in Sunday school and stuff, but a lot of times we don't really teach what these stories are about. Now, did you know, uh, many of you probably are aware of this, maybe there's a few that don't, Daniel is actually written, this book, in two languages. It starts off in Hebrew, 
and which is the, of course, the um, the language of the the Jews of the Hebrew nation. So it starts off in Hebrew, um, and as it begins, um, and Daniel's being captured and his three friends, etc. This is the end of the monarchy. So the monarchy, the kings of uh, descendants of the king of David, they they stop right when Daniel is beginning. Before chapter one is concluded, the monarchy is over. Thus, we enter into what's called the time of the Gentiles, which is what even to this day, we're still living in that, in the times of the Gentiles. Israel does not have a physical king sitting on the throne. So we are in the time uh, when Israel has no monarchy and um, outside of Jesus, who's in heaven, not reigning here on earth right now. But uh, because of this, Daniel starts off writing this book in the Hebrew language. But then in chapter one, this is so interesting. As chapter one unfolds, all of a sudden, it's, Daniel switches to the Chaldean language. So maybe you've often heard that the Bible is written basically in three languages. It's written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek, the New Testament, but it's also written in Chaldean. Um, a large part of Daniel, particularly these chapters here, part of chapter 1 and going through 6, um, these, generally, um, those sections there, this, this large section is written in Chaldean. And then after this, Daniel switches back and goes back into Hebrew. So, and even this, this is prophetic because he starts off during the time of the monarchy, thus it's Hebrew, the monarchy ends, we switch then to a Gentile language during the times of the Gentiles. But then he switches back when he's telling the Hebrews specifically what to expect in the future, in eschatology, in the end times, he gets into all of this and what's going to happen to them. It, it's just magnificent the way this book is put together like this. And as we explore this, um, just to let you know, too, each one of these Bible stories is a, pro is a prophecy dealing with what the Jews are going to experience throughout this time, uh, throughout the time of the Gentiles. So, as uh, for instance, let me just run through this really quick. If, you, if you're not familiar with, go back and read these stories because it's just absolutely fascinating uh, how, how these stories are put together. So chapter one is about how the Jews are to remain Jewish. Even in the times of the Gentiles, when they're deported to the Gentile land, God tells them to stay Jewish. You have Daniel and his three friends. Remember how they refused to um, eat the Gentile food? And to this day, Hebrew people, even though we're still living in the time of the Gentiles, Orthodox Jews and stuff, they still follow the kosher uh, food laws. Um, they still are a peculiar people for this. Even though the Babylonians tried and tried to assimilate them, gave them new names, clothed them differently, gave them a new education, all these type of things, they were trying to assimilate the elite, Daniel and his three friends, the elite of the Hebrews into the Gentile or the Babylonian culture and world. Um, they were trying to assimilate them. But God was telling them in this this first chapter, no, you remain Jewish. Even though you're living there, you remain Jewish. And the Jews did this. So this is a prophecy. Chapter one is a prophecy telling the Jews to remain Jewish, even during the times of the Gentiles, of which we're still in. Chapter two 
is all about the Gentile kingdoms that are going to come and go. Nebuchadnezzar has dream and and all these things happen and it mentions um, and it talks about the spe- uh, specific kingdoms that are going to come in the times of the Gentiles. And so we see those things unfold. So Daniel is prophesizing because these things have not happened yet. Um, and Daniel is telling the Jews, this is what we're going to experience. These are the Gentile kingdoms that are coming. You get to chapter 3 and the familiar story about the fiery furnace and Daniel's three friends. Daniel's not mentioned in this part, but um, he's probably in a different part of the kingdom as this is taking place and unfolding. But anyway, um, Daniel's three friends go through the fiery furnace. So what is being told here, Daniel is prophesizing from God, telling the Jews, you're going to go through fiery trials. You're going to survive. Daniel's three friends survive. God will be with you. And remember the fourth person who forms, uh, who appears in the furnace with the men, and the men um, come out unscathed, not even smelling of soot. Nothing is burned on them whatsoever, even though it, um, the fires killed the Babylonian soldiers who were putting them in there. So Daniel is telling the people through God telling them through Daniel that the Jews are going to go through many fiery trials with kings and rulers trying to kill him. But don't worry, you're going to survive and God is still going to be with you. And we have seen that throughout world history. The Jews have gone through at least, uh, well, as far as I can find in world history, six major holocausts uh, throughout time. And there is another one coming, which will definitely there's one in um, the last days of the last days with the beast uh, or the Antichrist, if you will. I like to use the term the beast. But anyway, that's that one. So Daniel, um, Daniel chapter three is that prophecy. Daniel chapters four and five um, are also what's uh, all about telling the Jews what you're going to see happening to these Gentile kingdoms. Um, what's going to go on? So uh, don't. It's like God saying. Don't be afraid. Don't go nuts on me or anything, because I am in control, and these are the kingdoms that are going to come and what's going to happen. And in chapter 4, it's uh, more—we uh, start to see even— um, remnants of the beast, the Antichrist coming. He's mentioned in that story. And then um, it's, though more uh, on the Gentile kingdoms, dealing with the political nature of these kingdoms and stuff. Chapter 5 is also what's going to happen to these Gentiles, what's going on throughout the times of the Gentiles, more about the kingdoms. But this time, it's taking more of a, a religious tone than a political one that we saw in, in that. So that's chapters 4 and 5. Then, you get to chapter six. Oh, this is so cool. Chapter six. Now, you all know this story. Daniel in the lion's den. Yes, it's a great little bedtime story. It's a phenomenal piece of prophecy. Oh, my gosh, this is so cool because it's about the death of the anointed one. The death and resurrection of the Messiah. You see, Daniel, let's take a look at this for just a second here. Daniel's life um, is different than like almost any other biblical character. We read a lot about his life, but there's something fascinating. We never read one negative thing about Daniel. 
There's only a few people in the Bible that are like that. Boaz is one in the book of Ruth. You never hear anything negative ever about Boaz. And as we talked about back in earlier a lesson, Boaz, when you see something like that, the character, like in the book of Ruth, Boaz is symbolic of the Messiah. Well, here we have it again, and even in greater detail. Daniel is never mentioned in the negative. Everything is always positive. Now, Daniel, of course, is a human. He did sin, but there's no recording of it. I mean, the Bible's very very unusual about that because it always shows the shortcomings of man besides, you know, the, the good things that we do. It shows, yeah, people are really screwed up and messed up. Well, Daniel doesn't have anything like that recorded. Every single detail about Daniel's life is written in the positive. Thus, when you see something like this in scripture, you study the character of the person and you will see something dealing with the Messiah. In the book of Ruth, it was Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. In Daniel, we're going to see it's the Messiah's life of what's going to happen as he atones for sin. And so we're going to, oh, this is so cool as we go through this and see how this this portrays. So there are some fascinating things about this, about this book, like I say, that it just gets me so excited when I think about this book. But there are some phenomenal aspects dealing with, uh, in chapter 6 of Daniel, and seeing how... Um, chapter 6 unfolds. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You can do that on your own uh, because it's a long chapter. But let me just show you some fascinating things dealing with, um, with Daniel and the similarities that we see with him and, and how it appears with Jesus. And so as we get into this, I want to show you, um, like for instance, in the first uh, in chapter six, now we're dealing with Daniel chapter six, and in the first, uh, the verses six through thirteen, what do we see? Daniel is being plotted against. People are plotting against the Messiah, or I'm sorry, against Daniel. They're plotting against Daniel and making up lies and stuff about him. They're trying to get rid of Daniel. They know that they can't very easily, so they've got to find some way of getting rid of this guy. And so they come up with this idea of setting up these lies about him. Now, as they do this, um, think about Christ now. When Christ is, um, is getting ready to go to the cross, he's brought up on charges, Daniel is brought up on charges in verses 6 through 13, and we see that he's brought up on charges of lies. Jesus also was brought up on charges of lies. You see the similarity. Oh, this continues. There's 10 things here. That was the first one, that they're both brought up on lies, trials on lies. Second, we're going to see that these um, these trials, uh, the, that... Um, in, in verses 14 and 15, what happens is the, the leadership, um, in this case Darius, tries to release Daniel. He sees this is a trumped-up case. He's been tricked. So he tries his best to get Daniel out of it, but he is bound by his own law, so he can't. So there's the problem there. Now, go to the time of Jesus. 
Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate sees through this. We know that Pilate, it's written in the Gospels, Pilate saw through what the Jews were trying to do. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He knows it was out of jealousy. The charges are false. And Pilate um, is trying to get him out of out of this problem also. He's like, I don't like this. He sends him off to Herod, in fact. So we, we see this. Um, and as he comes back then, um, the we're going to see then in verse 16 of Daniel uh, chapter 6, um, we have the trial take place. And what happens is, um, in Daniel's case, he is found guilty, of course, and he is put into the ground. He's put into the lion's den. Now, we know from archaeological evidence that lion's dens were built down in the ground. I know we often have these ideas, maybe it's like a bullpen or something, but no, it was it was a thing that was built in the ground, uh, underground, and it had an opening at the top, and that's where people were lowered into. It even talks about being lowered into. And so, Daniel is put into the ground. Well, of course, what happened to Jesus? Jesus, too, is put into the ground. He is crucified. He is put into the ground. He is buried. Then we see in verse 17 of chapter 6 of Daniel, a stone is rolled over the entrance. Well, when Jesus is put into the tomb, what does Pilate do and what do the Romans do? Um, They allow him to be put into a tomb, and a stone is rolled over the opening. Um, Also in verse 17 of chapter 6 of Daniel, it talks about Darius sealing the tomb. That doesn't mean taking like caulking and putting around it. This was putting uh, clay um, or plaster and and putting the signet ring, um, signifying it's sealed under the king's authority. Jesus, too. If you'll study the scriptures, you will see that his tomb was sealed by the Romans. What they did in Jesus's case is they would have taken um, plaster and put on either side of the stone um, and with a cord um, wrapped around it with the Roman symbol um, hanging from this cord, showing that this is now the property of the Roman Empire and probably like sent to um, Senatus Populus K, um, K Romanus sitting right there on the seal, showing it's the property of that. But, but also, Pilate would have it sealed with his signet ring on both sides of the plaster here. So we see the exact same thing happening. Then we get to verses back in Jan- Daniel chapter 6, verses 18 through 22. They're in the ground. This is death. Jesus is in the ground. He is dead. But they're both in the ground. Then you get to verse 22. Um, we see an angel appear to Daniel. Well, um, an angel appears in the resurrection story of Jesus also. The angel came and opened up the tomb. So there's an angel in both of these involved. In verse 23 of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel comes alive out of this like tomb, out of this den of lions. He comes out alive. And Jesus, we know, comes out of the tomb, out of the ground also alive. And then you get to verse 28 of chapter 6, they both prosper. Daniel prospered. Um, 
and and was uh, given even more glory. Jesus, of course, is now in his resurrected body, and he is glorified. And so we see some of the similarities. So that's the first part I wanted to show you, having to do with this these prophecies and the similarities that you see um, in chapter 6, dealing with the death of the Messiah, the death of the Holy One, the anointed one who's coming. It was foretold, even in the steps. Daniel records even the steps of these, these, um, these, uh, the death of Jesus. He he records it all. So actually, I I um, this was just like an introduction into this book because I'm covering a lot of different sections. But um, as we are on seventy one. We would then call this, if you're taking notes, I should have done this at the beginning, 71, this is the 71st prophecy, um, the death of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah. And what we have is, of course, the parallel between Daniel and uh, and Jesus himself. I mean, how cool is that? And chapter 6, that's why I'm so thrilled about this book. And you can read these things. It's just absolutely amazing. Well, let's move to number 72. Number 72. So 71 was chapter 6. Now 72, we're going to move into chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we're going to look particularly at two verses, uh, verses 13 and 14 of this chapter. And we're going to see something. I mean, Let me just ask you this question. Have you ever wondered... Ever thought about, um, as you read the Bible, Jesus seemed to have a favorite title for himself. Did you ever catch which one it was? What was Jesus' favorite title? And why did he use it so often? Well, prophecy number 72 is Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, and I'm entitling this, The Son of Man. The Son of Man. So if you've ever wondered why Jesus referred to himself so frequently as the Son of Man, this is why. Now, in the last lesson, I talked to you about how there are many titles of the Messiah. Here is another one. He's called the Son of Man. And it's a title given to the Messiah in this book. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. Let's read this. And it reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There is a lot of theology in that. Well, we're just going to cover this quickly. We're not doing a a study on deep theology. Oh my gosh, if we did in chapter 6, we'd be talking about chapter 6, this last prophecy, for hours and hours or maybe even a couple of days. Here, there's a lot too. Now, I, I want you to see that, first of all, this is where Jesus gets the title Son of Man, and he uses it frequently. Now, how many times people have come up to me or I've had this in when I taught school even. I remember students asking me at times um, or making a statement that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. 
And I remember one time sitting with a group. Um, it was a, a visiting youth group, uh, about 80, 80 or so kids high school kids. And um, I was brought in to just answer questions. Um, those kind of things always make me nervous because I never know what kind of questions you're, I'm going to get. But um, so I'm sort of nervous because sometimes they're going to ask me, you know, possibly something really technical. And I, I'll never forget this one time that they had the chairs all sitting in a circle and I was in the middle of the circle. I'm the guest. And I was sitting in the middle and um, after being introduced and stuff, um, the youth group leader uh, opened it up, the youth pastor, and says, now, if you have any questions, go ahead and ask uh, Michael your questions. And there were two guys sitting next to each other. They both raised their hands at the same time. And as they looked at each other, they said, well, you go ahead. So they obviously had the same question. And the question was this, um, why do we worship Jesus as the Messiah? Because Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And they sort of sat there, and there was some, before I could even respond, once they asked that question, a number of other kids um, chimed in. Yeah, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, never heard him say, I am the Messiah, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went to, I said, okay, if you um, got Bibles, and they had Bibles all handed out there, so everybody could have one, and some were going to help others find it. I said, let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and I read this passage to him. And I said, you see what the title is? I said, there's many titles for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. But here is, it's actually mentioning the name Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? He's coming, it says, to the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days, we have many Christian songs that we sing. And to be honest, some of them um, are not doctrinally correct because we sing in some of our contemporary and more popular Christian, modern Christian songs about the Ancient of Days as being Jesus. No. If you notice this, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days who presents him and gives him all of this. The Ancient of Days is Father God, and so the Son of Man comes to him. So Ancient of Days is the Father God, but it says the Son of Man, and it says that he, he is uh, presented before him. He's given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom everlasting that will not pass away. Uh, you know, this is all dealing definitely with the Messiah. So the Son of Man is the Messiah. Thus, as I was telling these, these high schoolers, I said every single time Jesus is talking and going out of his way in his sentence structure to say the Son of Man, talking about himself, claiming that title, you realize he is claiming to be the Messiah every single time he does this. It was Jesus's favorite title, and in every case he is claiming, this is me. He's calling himself the Son of Man from this scripture, and he is claiming to be the Messiah. So if you've ever wondered, did Jesus ever claim to be the Messiah? We've talked about this before, about him claiming to be God. Well, did he ever claim to be the Messiah? Oh my gosh, how many times did he claim this? In all the Gospels, he, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's just amazing. He used this title more than any other one he spoke of about himself. Um, but a lot of Christians just don't understand it. When Jesus used this title, he's just not saying, yeah, I'm the Son of a Man. No, he's 
giving the messianic title and he's claiming it. Like for instance, in Matthew, let's see, what is it? Verse 26, verse 64 says, Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I mean, this is a description describing the Messiah and Jesus is calling himself the son of man. He's talking about himself here. Luke chapter 21, verse 27, and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. John 1, 51 even, the first chapter as John opens up his gospel, he says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. How many times does Jesus use this messianic title? So if you've ever wondered, or if you ever get in a discussion with someone who says Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, you take him to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's the 72nd prophecy, major prophecy that we've covered here. And you can show them, there's no questioning about it, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. Okay, and let's go to another one. This is going to be uh, our last one, actually, in the book of Daniel. There's, there's so many, there's some minor ones all through here, but we're just doing some major ones here. So let's go to number 73. And this one's going to take us a little bit of time, too, as we've been going through um, this one. But this one is also just so cool. Oh, my gosh, this is so neat. And I could speak for hours on this one. We don't have that kind of time. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of this um, as we go through this. But number, uh, number 73... This is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. So verses 24 through 27, chapter 9. And I'm entitling this one, The Time the Anointed One Comes. The Time the Anointed One Comes. Now, I'm going to take you back to the Christmas story for a minute. If you recall in the book of Matthew, Matthew's the only one who records this. He records the visit of the Magi, the wise men, if you will. Um, or if you really want to be elementary about it, the three kings. So they were not really kings. They're Magi. What are Magi? Magi uh, were coming from the east, and they are uh, the wise men. Now, you read the first chapter of Daniel and the second chapter of Daniel. You're going to see something. Daniel is not just a wise man, him and his three friends, but he is appointed the chief of the Magi. You get down to chapter five with the handwriting on the wall. They go and they get Daniel, the chief Magi. He is elevated when Nebuchadnezzar needs him. Um, Daniel is able to perform a, a miracle thus showing that he is speaking for God by telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the meaning of it. And the thing is, he is then elevated to be the chief of the Magi. Read the, gos or read the books here uh, of the first six chapters of Daniel carefully, and you'll see he becomes the chief. Now, Daniel is writing this book and um, writing this all down as a scroll. He also, in this book, talks about reading some other scrolls. He specifically mentions the scroll of Jeremiah. So he is writing scrolls. There are scrolls there. And the thing is, the, the scrolls would be passed down from one Magi to another. When Daniel dies, his scroll would become a very important scroll because of all the wisdom in it and all the prophecies in it. The Magi 
who follow him, the wise men who follow him, would keep these, and they would study these. Now, when you get to the Christmas story, the wise men, if you know how the story goes, we've already talked about this in an earlier, uh, two earlier prophecies, that there would be a star, and the wise men had access to these Old Testament books. And so they knew that there was a star. Obviously, they didn't have access to, to Micah because they didn't know where the Messiah was going to be born, but they knew the time of the Messiah to be born. Did you ever catch that? They knew the time, and they also knew a star. And I do believe that the star was probably a supernatural, uh, miraculous event um, because it's talked about how it moves and stuff and um, and goes from one place to the other. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind naturally. I can't really explain it outside of it seems to be a miracle. But anyway, as we look at this, I want you to understand the Magi— Hundreds of years later, this book has been passed down. So the Magi have studied the writings of Daniel, all these things about the Messiah. Now, we just got done mentioning in the first prophecy we mentioned today that the Messiah is going to be put into the grave and um, he will be resurrected. They catch this. They're seeing the other things. Uh, the the, the uh, Messiah will atone for sins. He will die. He will be betrayed. There's all these prophecies that we've been studying. All of these, they have access to this stuff. And they're not called wise men because they're wise guys. They're wise men because they've been studying these, and this information has been passed down among these, uh, these people, um, this group of individuals for a long period of time. And so they have this information. So how did they know when the Messiah was going to be born. Well, let's read Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. This, folks, is a cipher. It's a cipher. And the way it's described and stuff, it's a little strange just reading it. it um, out of uh, Switching from uh, the Chaldean language, or in, in this case, this is not called, um, Chaldean, this would be Hebrew. Switching from the Hebrew into English, um, different translations are going to have different words for this. It's hard, but if you, it, I'm going to explain what the words mean as we go through. But let's see what this, this says. So Daniel 9, 24 through 27 reads, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem in the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times." And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people and the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. 
and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and a half for uh, and a ha- and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator holy cow there's a lot in that um, there are some amazing terms. Let's just go back and look at a couple of things. First of all, it says the anointed one twice. We read that, anointed one. That's the Hebrew word, Meshach, which is where we get the word Messiah. That's what Messiah means. We call Jesus Christ because that's from basically the Greek. Christos is going to be uh, the, the Greek term for Messiah. Uh, so when you say Jesus Christ, you're actually, you actually want to trace it all the way back. You're calling him Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One. So this is talking about the Anointed One. And you'll notice in, in here that um, he, he does some amazing things. He puts an end to sin. He makes atonement for iniquity, atonement for sins. That's what he's doing. He's bringing everlasting righteousness. This is what the Messiah is going to do. You catching this? This is the function of Messiah. You starting to see why this is so exciting? How this is what the, the function of the Messiah is going to be. Now, how this ends then, it starts talking about the desolation. And there's a despicable one coming. That's having to do with the beast that comes in the end times, the last days of the last days. But what a passage. Did you know that not only did Gabriel announce to Mary that she was to be the earthly mother of the Messiah, going back to our Christmas story, but who's telling Daniel all of this? It's the angel Gabriel again. Gabriel is mentioned in the Christmas story, but Gabriel is the angel telling David this, or I'm sorry, Daniel, this information. Daniel is writing this down from the angel Gabriel. Gabriel has a lot to do with the Christmas story, and this is dealing with it. Now, it gave us some sort of strange things in here, but he's telling us of when the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to be appearing and begin his ministry. And it even says what his ministry is. His ministry is to atone for sin, to remove sin, to make people righteous. And we know that that's what Jesus came to do. This is all fitting. Do you see how cool this is? This is the gospel in miniature. Um, but, oh my gosh, there's so much in here. But this often confusing passage holds the answer also to when it's going to take place. So like I say, the wise men would have had access to this, uh, and they would know when to come to visit the child. Now, the wise men set out and then saw the star, and they knew when to go. How did they know when to go? Well, as I said, there's a cipher in here. Well, now we're reading out of the English Standard Translation, and many translations call this weeks, keeps using the word weeks. Other translations use um, different things. Some use years. Some translations use the word period. Um, Basically what it is, it's seven sets of periods. It's not a seven-day week. It's a cipher. It's symbolic for periods of time. That's what this is talking about. The seven sets of seven time periods is being talked about. And this is, remember, this is written in Hebrew. And it's written to a Hebrew given from an angel, given from God to angel Gabriel, to 
Daniel, who writes this down. And so we have to make sure that we're looking at this from a Hebrew perspective, because the Hebrews, uh, we're talking about time, they have a different type of calendar than we have. So when it comes out, what, what happens here? This comes out to be uh, um, the, this long period of time here. Now, these wise men from the East have access to Daniel's book, and they're able to figure this out. That's why they're smart guys. Um, they catch about what the anointed one. So um, when it says about the seven sevens are decreed for your people uh, to put an end to, to sin, to atone for wickedness, et cetera, et cetera. And then it goes on and it says there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens, um, depending on which translation you're looking at. When you look at these numbers, you might be wondering, what in the world is this talking about? Well, these, these sevens are actually talking about years. So let's do a little arithmetic. That's all you got to do to figure this out. And the wise men, uh, these magi, were mathematicians. Um, they had studied the movement of stars in space and physics. They understood stuff like this. And so we're looking at a word, um, and the Hebrew word here is, uh, the Hebrew word that's being used here frequently is uh, sabua, which in the Old Testament often is used for week, but it can also be meaning a period of a time of a year. Um, so when you start looking at this instead of just weeks, like the English Standard puts them as weeks, when you start looking at this as being years, it takes on a different look. And so we have, and it mentions seven times 70, seven periods of seven, periods, seven sets of seven periods. So um, we're going to do a little math here. Gabriel appeared to Daniel. Now, first of all, we have to get the time period of when this is occurring for this all to make sense. We're still in BC. Daniel's taking place. This is around, as, as give or take a few years, this is somewhere around, probably around 457 BC, somewhere in there, Gabriel appears to Daniel. Um, now, the first seven sevens are seven times seven, or you're going to come up with 49 years. That's the first thing you're going to come up with. Then it says that there's a second, 62 sevens. Well, 62 times seven is 434. Now, you add 49 to 434, take into consideration that this was written around 457 BC, and you're going to come out to be right around 27 AD. So um, we're, we're starting to see a, a period of time here that's going to be about 490 years total. And God is telling the Jews that six special things are going to happen during the time of the Gentiles, um, and it's going to take this period of time. God divides the time period into three sections. That's why it's written in this cipher. There's three periods that are talked about. The first three deal with sin, because it talks about sin. Um, the last three deal with righteousness. So seven sets of seven time periods is 49. Seven times seven is 49 years. Now, if we take this somewhere around... Um, talking about when this actually starts now, we are given a starting point because it talks about rebuilding the city. What city is this? Where was Daniel from? Jerusalem. What happened to Jerusalem? It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it is going to be rebuilt under King Artaxerxes 
And he's going to tell Nehemiah and get permission to Nehemiah, if you go to the book of Nehemiah, to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Roughly, that is right around 444 B.C. So that's the time period we have, 444 B.C. In other words, I just gave you the starting point. At 444 B.C., now we're going to do a, add these years up and put it to that. Now, remember, we're in B.C., so it's like using negative numbers. As we add numbers to add years to it, the numbers are going to get smaller because we're going to B.C., and um, so it's moving like that. So 62 sets of seven periods, that's 62 times 7, that's 343 years. Now, it also, we had 49 years, 7 times 7. You add that together, we get 380. Uh, or 483 years. So 483 years. Now remember, we're using a Jewish calendar. It's not the same as the calendar we use. You have to use the Jewish calendar. It's slightly different. It's a lunar calendar and has to be adjusted differently than our uh, calendar, our modern calendar that we have to adjust every four years by adding an extra uh, day and, you know, like a leap year. The Jewish calendar was different. They would actually add a month after so much period of time. But this is talking about what? First of all, the first thing that's being mentioned is when sin is going to be removed. And who's doing it? The anointed one removing sin. And um, the Messiah would take care of the sin about 483 years after 444 B.C. Now, again, we're using a Jewish calendar, which is only 360 days long. If you use that type of calendar, the Jewish calendar, starting at 444 with Nehemiah, you come out to be right around, a, we might be a year off because calendars got messed, but we should be coming out around 33 AD. There's no year zero. So you go from 1 BC to 1 AD. So there's no zero. We are now at 33 AD. Now, isn't that fascinating? That tells you when sin is going to be removed when sin will be atoned for, when righteousness will be given. So the date of the Messiah coming and doing his ministry is what this is talking about. Not about the birth. The wise men are not given this information for the birth. It's giving the information to the wise men about when the Messiah is going to do this. Now, the thing is, the Messiah, as we've seen in other prophecies, has to be 30 years old to start his ministry. And Jesus's ministry was about three years, a little over three years. So that gives us the time period. Now, the Jew, or these wise men would know this. So if they know that the year, roughly the year when the, um, the action of the cross, if we will, when, when atonement will be made, sin will be removed and atoned for, righteousness will be restored to mankind. If that is at the cross, and it says that he will be cut down even. Did you catch that in there? It says that he will be cut down. He, he will, this Messiah, this anointed one, is going to be killed doing this. I mean, this is just a fascinating study that you see here. It says that he's, you know, he's going to be cut off. And, and when, he is, um, when he does this, this is talking about um, Jesus on the cross, the Messiah on the cross. So the time periods to bring an end to rebellion, to stop sin, to forgive wrongs, to usher in everlasting righteousness, they get the year. Now we just got to, they get the year it's going to happen. So they know it's going to be coming up in about 30 years. It has, the Messiah has to have, can't be um, the priest to take over and do all this until he's 30 years old because the priest 
cannot function until he's 30. And Luke chapter 1 tells us that Jesus in his 30th year began his ministry. The ministry was only a couple of years long. So they can figure, okay, he's got to have time to perform all of these actions to be the miraculous one who's going to do all these miracles, who's going to do all these things we've prophesied already and have all that happen. So they know right around when the time period was going to happen. That's why they come over, they see the star, the star, and they know, oh, there's a star. It's going to show us where the birth is. They catch this too. And that's how they found the time of the Messiah's birth. As I said, they were missing one book. Obviously, they didn't have the book of Micah that tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They had to go to Jerusalem, and Herod didn't know. Herod's not even Jewish. He's an Edomite. And so he had to ask the scribes, and the scribes said, oh, that's an easy one. It's going to be born in uh, Bethlehem. Now they knew where to go, and it says in Scripture, they left Jerusalem, and then the star appeared to them and moved over to the spot. Now, the thing is, this is why I don't think it's some astronomical thing, uh, common movement of stars and things like this or whatever, because Jerusalem is only six miles away from Bethlehem. And to see a star move that type of distance, it couldn't have been too high up in the sky to be over the top of where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But it says the star appeared and it moved to that position. That's why I believe it's a supernatural light. Possibly an angel? I don't know. Maybe it was Gabriel himself. Who knows? But something not natural that was doing this and being able to move where they could acknowledge that it's moving from here in Jerusalem and it's moving six miles over. That's what scripture tells us. Now, you might have wondered, wait a minute, we're not done with this cipher because it talks about a last period of seven years. We didn't cover that one. Well, what was that last period of time talking about? What's going on? And that's when the desolation comes. The the one who's, um, I mean, we, we have seen so many cool things that Jesus fulfilled. Um, let's go back for just a second. He He's going to remove sin. He's going to restore righteousness. It even says, talks about a new covenant being given, and he does that. He initiates the new covenant at the Last Supper. We say that in communion when we take the elements and stuff. This blood is the new covenant of my blood. So we get a new covenant. Jeremiah prophesies this. So they get this part, but then it gets to the point where it says um, that there's... Uh, there's another set here of time, and he will make a strong covenant for the many for one week, and for half of a week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. So we will put an end to stuff, and it talks about the abomination coming. The abomination is a word that's usually associated then with the Antichrist or the beast, if you will. I like to use that term better. So it's talking about then, um, also it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. The Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. And these last periods that we come across in this time frame deal with the future events. This is eschatology, because it's talking about the beasts coming and stuff. So that's how this is set up. And you can see it's set up a little different um, than some of the other things we've looked at. It's a puzzle. But what a magnificent prophecy, I mean, or I should make it in the plural, prophecies we have seen in just this short little passage here. As I said, there's so much in here, and there's a lot with eschatology, but we're not talking about messianic future prophecies. I mean, that would be a whole nother lesson. Um, and there's others who, who get into this and stuff. But um, if you really want to study this, study the book of Daniel. It's so important. Even for eschatology, if you're going to study eschatology, you just 
so many times I've I've been with groups, youth groups and things, and I've I've led youth groups and I've asked them, what do you want to study? And they'll say, oh, let's do Revelation. And I would always ask, what do you want to do with Revelation? Well, we want to know the end times. We want to know about the end time prophecy. And I'm like, well, okay, we got to go and do a major study on the book of Daniel. And then we got to throw in Matthew uh, chapter 4 or chapter 24 and 25 and then Mark and Luke. And I start listening First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians and other things. If we're going to do eschatology, you have to do this because there are so many parts of the puzzle. If you just do... If you just do Revelation, that's like putting together a 700-piece jigsaw puzzle that you're only using 100 pieces with. You're missing most of the material, and it won't make sense. You have to use Daniel in particular. That's the key one. Matter of fact, when the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 asked Jesus about the end times, about his coming again, he, he actually mentions to them, well, what did Daniel say? Daniel is the key book for stuff like this, so you've got to go there. And this is a phenomenal book, and wow, we've been going a long time here, but this is... I knew this would be a long lesson. Um, I just It's just so exciting to see how all of this fit. It's a remarkable, remarkable study. And um, if you want more information on Daniel and stuff, um, I can uh, you, you can go ahead and um, message me, um, get on our, our website, evidenceforfaith.org, and contact us, and I can give you some good sources for uh, doing eschatology if you're really looking for stuff like that. Um, but I'm, I'm, we are primarily just focusing on the prophecies of the, f- the coming of the Messiah the first time. And that's what we've been doing. Uh, the road to Emmaus, these, these prophecies. And now you know how the wise men knew to come. And plus, th- they had all these other books. And so they knew so much. But there was one thing they didn't know, but so much. They knew the Messiah. And that's one reason they, did you catch that they worshipped him? When they came, they worshipped him. Why? Because they saw in the previous prophecy we talked about here today that he is the Son of Man, the Son of God. He's he's coming directly for that, and he's going to atone for mankind's sin. He's going to make people righteous. No human can do that. Only God could do that. And these wise men, these magi, knew that. Thus, they came and they bowed to him. Not just because it was their knees were, um, you know, itching or something like that. They bowed. They laid flat in homage to Almighty God. They laid homage to the Son of Man sent by the Ancient of Days. How cool is that? Well. I want to thank you so much for joining me through this lesson if you've uh, got into that. And again, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can give us uh, questions and stuff. And we we love your prayers. Thank you for praying for our ministry. Evidence for Faith, we're not even a year old yet. God has been using us in so many cool ways. Um, it's just amazing. And we just, uh, we covet your prayers. And also, if, if you feel led by God to support our ministry so that we can go out to places, because we do not charge for uh, me to go out to places. We're allowing, uh, we're just depending upon God to supply us the needs. And he's brought in a lot of people who are supplying our ministry to pay for the plane tickets and stuff like this and and whatever, uh, or gas, gas, yeah, the price of gas now. So we have people joining our ministry to help put out the Word of God, because I will not charge someone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I refuse to make people pay to do that. 
that's one thing God put upon my heart when we started this, and that's the we the way we're doing it. As long as we possibly can, I don't want to charge the uh, for the gospel. I don't want to make someone pay to hear the word of God. Um, grace is given to us freely. I want to just follow that pattern. I want to give it freely too. But in doing so, we do have expenses that we have to come up for. So if you feel led to to help us in that, we'd appreciate it uh, very much. And uh, we will pray for you if you inform us of anything. But thank you so much. I really enjoyed you coming with us. Now, the next time we're together, we're going to be doing the next lessons here in the book of Hosea is where we're going to start off next. But I thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you're enjoying this series. But until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.